0: Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, we revisit Ed Gaffney. He was the first guest I ever had on this podcast over two years ago, and he's back. And he's back for two reasons. Number one, it's pride, and um, he's going to talk in the second part of his interview about a new show that he has created with his son, who's an out-gay actor-producer, And it's going to be on a screening service specifically uh, targeted, targeted, marketed to gay people. He's going to talk all about that. Um, I know, I don't get it because Netflix has plenty of gay stuff, but whatever. That's great. Um, And, uh, but before all of that, he's going to talk about the law. We're going to talk about some of the issues arising today, especially involving discrimination and the fact, as you can hear Brooklyn behind me, the fact that our judicial system uh, isn't always fair, and by not always, almost never. (laughs) We're gonna talk about that too. Uh, Make sure that if you have questions uh, for me or you wanna contact me, go to www.isthatreallylegal.com. There's a place for you to leave comments and to reach out to me. If you like this show, make sure to subscribe, tell your friends, you can share the show. Do all those things, and while you're doing those things, bite into one of many Abe's muffins. They taste great. They are allergen-free. If your kid breaks out in hives or coughs or wheezes when they eat something weird, none of that stuff's in Abe's muffins, and they actually taste good. How about that? You know what else is good? This interview with Ed Gaffney. Ed Gaffney, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. It's good to have you back after two years.
1: Thank you. I am happy to be back.
0: (laughs) I mean, as I'll probably say in the intro, but I'm just going to cop to you now, I have known you since the 80s. (laughs) I knew you when I was in college and you think I just graduated law school. That's when we first met, maybe around that time. I will just call it the early 80s. Uh, And um, I was just speaking with Phyllis Capanna, who's a mutual friend, and I told her, and therefore everybody, that you humorously recommended to me, uh, as I was going into law school, you said, to get ready, I should read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. (laughs) And I didn't understand. I thought, oh, okay, that's good. And then i read it. (laughs) It was like, well, first of all, it's one of the greatest books of all time. And I think I do need to reread it just because. Uh, But, um, holy crap. I I mean, you know, Hunter had some problems, but there (laughs) is something, uh, and maybe it didn't age well. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. But I read it in the 80s and thought it was one of the greatest things I'd ever read. Oh yeah. As as your attorney, I advise you. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll let people read it. Uh, but yes, those were the things that I was like that's oh. what
1: came that in calling Las Vegas the nerve center of the American dream.
0: I'm like, oh he's not sadly, he's not wrong. Even I mean, that was back in the day when Vegas was crappier. They tried for a brief time during our lifetimes. To somehow make Vegas a family destination, (laughs) that failed miserably, and it had to because it's absolutely the antithesis of what most people think of as family values. There's gambling, there's nudity, there's a tremendous amount of alcohol and probably a lot of other substances that they don't openly condone, Mm -hmm. but they're very much part of the Vegas experience. And it's just a surreal thing. I've only been to Vegas prostitution. once. Prostitution, prostitution. Yeah. Right. Although it, technically it's not legal in Vegas, but it's legal elsewhere in Nevada. But it, it's got to be rampant there. I just want to point out: I've only been to Vegas once, and it was with you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but that was because we were on tour with your wife, a New York Times best-selling author. I don't even remember where we did the signings. They were probably in the outskirts of Vegas.
1: You forgot um, who else we came who who else came along with us? Shabang Waza.
0: <laughs> I don't re- remember who Shebang Waza was.
1: You don't. I think you do, and you're just not going to say it out loud to a bunch of people that that are listening. Was that a character I made up? Yes, that was
0: the character that you you gambled under the name Shabang Waza. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to go on the record as saying I won at Blackjack. Yeah. That was uh, in both the Paris Hotel and maybe Caesars or I can't remember. But I ended up taking my winnings and treating us both to a nice dinner. I think that's what I ended up doing. That's my that, memory anyway.
1: That sounds right. You uh, did win. I remember that. That was fun.
0: That may be the last time I wanted cards. Uh, but I want to get back. So, um, people should just know that you and I have a relationship and you still are, um, literally a mentor of mine in legal work. Um, but in lots of ways, we've just been really good friends. You've been like an adopted big brother and it's perfect that you're on now because, uh, we're both kind of losing our minds. <laughs> and what I mean to say is you and I are attorneys and you and I, Are two people I think who really took the Constitution and civil liberties very seriously from the moment we got involved in it. Um, I think you and I have both had, maybe I'll speak for myself, I had tremendous education over the pandemic uh, because I saw not just the rise of fascism in this country, but the history of racism and white supremacy And, you know, fascism that uh, lived in this country when I really wasn't paying attention. And I don't know if you had that same experience, if you, you know, I started watching a lot of of documentaries, just as an example, you know, I have a four-year degree in political science and a three-year doctor of law. uh, And in none of those studies, did I ever hear or read about the uh, mass uh, killings of black people in was it kansas there was a there was a town that was a very functioning uh financially well off uh, african american town and it basically got destroyed uh, by a bunch of white people and nobody ever paid for it
1: yeah oh yeah that was in um that was uh, a community in tulsa i believe right and did yeah. you ever read or know about that
0: you you oh. uh, yeah now you went four years to an ivy league school three years to a law school that was uber liberal, you know, Mm -hmm. it was very, um, actually, was it four years at your law school because of the special program? It was three years. No, And um, and so you and I, highly educated, very liberal, well-meaning white people, didn't know about the Tulsa, that's the Tulsa massacre, and a whole lot of other things. And I'm not going to bore people with it. You don't need two old white guys talking about black american history there's plenty of other people and if anybody can think of someone who should come on the show go to www.isthatreallylegal.com let me know i have spoken with some people but i'm keen to talk to more but my whole point in this is that there while you and i have been well-meaning and we've certainly represented a fair share of african americans and other minority people in what we consider a very unjust justice system, which we already knew years ago, Uh, we had no idea how blind we were to the tremendous history of what's been revealed under the Trump administration and the way the pandemic rolled out and other things. So I only say that as sort of a entree, a little overture into our conversation. I want to let people know that I don't know if you and I talked about this. I've brought this up. There were two, and this is, there's a reason I'm bringing this up. Massachusetts is considered by many to be a very liberal state. Number one, they're wrong. Number two, um, there were recently two major scandals in the drug labs in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Those labs test evidence for the state But they're not supposed to take a side. If if you get arrested and you have a green leafy substance, they're supposed to test it to determine whether it's oregano or marijuana. If it's powder, they need to check to see if it's baby laxative or cocaine. Mm -hmm. Not one, but two long-term scientists completely lied about the tests that they had done for many years. There's a great Netflix documentary. documentary about this Uh, called uh, The Anatomy of a Drug Scandal, I believe, or something about a drug scandal. Yeah. Uh, uh, And it talks about Sonia Farrakh and Annie Dukin. I I won't go too deep into it. Just know that at the time, and I'm going to say this, and I will own this, the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was Martha Coakley. And I believe, in my opinion, she was very responsible for a cover-up that happened. And she got away scot-free. It's a good thing she never became governor, but she's a disaster. I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on that. That'll be my own law. For the four people that listen to this, if Martha Coakley wants to sue me, go ahead because we will open up the discovery on that case and it will be shocking. All right. We'll put that aside for the moment. I'm a little worked up, but we're going to bring this up to you. Now, Ed has represented a lot of really interesting people, a lot of interesting cases, and I mean that both humorously and seriously, (laughs) but recently, it has come to the attention of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that there was an attorney who was supposed to be representing uh, some people of color and, at the very least, should be impartial. And it was discovered something else, and with that, I'm going to let you Ed, explain it a little more clearly for us.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, actually, this is a it's it's an interesting uh, <clears throat> way to introduce this because the um, the blindness um, that I have come to <laughs> recognize in myself um, <clears throat> with respect to um the 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 reality of the fact that there are really you know such tremendous differences between the experiences of white americans and uh and black americans and brown americans and people uh women uh people in the lgbtq community you know the the straight white male experience which is my experience is really really different from these people um <clears throat> and um you know when you were pointing out uh i mean this is just a quick personal uh sort of note of uh well i i i feel obliged to say this every time i have the opportunity because it it feels so uh so strange but i want to make sure that i say it out loud because i never ever want to forget it when um I think that, the, that it's not just COVID, it's not just Trump, it's also cell phones, thankfully, that have helped at least me um, understand uh, what's going on in this country. Uh, because when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, hmm. um, uh, of course, that was you know, huge, huge news. It had a monstrous impact on the country. Um, and then in the, I don't remember precisely the, the order of the, of the victims, but I do remember that there were people, one of whose name was Philando Castillo, a man named Walter Scott in South Carolina, I believe. There was Eric Garner in New York, Tamir Rice in um, Cleveland. And as these names came into the news and these reports and often with videos the, I remember having this realization, and I'm ashamed of it. I'm happy to say that the realization was corrected in about 15 seconds. But it, it, I thought it was really revealing. And I, and I remember this, and I remind myself of it because it's really important as a white guy. What I thought was, wow, we're really going through a bad patch right now. It's like, Sorry.
0: Yeah. Isn't that shocking? Uh, You know what? But I had that too. I I, I didn't, you know, I'm not black. I didn't realize that I've been going through a bad couple of centuries.
1: Yeah, exactly. 15 seconds later, it's like, oh, no, you idiot. We've been doing this forever. We have been doing this for freaking ever. Okay. Fast forward to the case that you you were talking about in your introduction. There is a lawyer. He is now deceased. His name is Richard Doyle, and he worked for um, CPCS, which is the organization in mass, I mean, sorry, he didn't work for CPCS. He was one of the one of the lawyers, one of the many hundreds, if not thousands of lawyers in Massachusetts that are appointed to represent indigent people.
0: For people it, who don't know, that's basically like a public defender, but right. like a um, public defender for hire, if you will.
1: Yeah, p- public defender, who is is hired by the state to on an you know an independent contractor basis to represent people who can't afford a lawyer and he did this work starting in the 90s <clears throat> until um, around 2017 or 2018 and the reason he stopped doing this around 2017 or 2018 was because in 2017 Cpcs which is the state organization that, that organizes and it administers the the appointment of these lawyers uh, to people who can't afford them, they became aware of the fact that for at least the prior three years, Attorney Doyle had been posting on his Facebook page racist stuff, like really bad racist stuff.
0: I'm not going to ask you what it was. We'll just assume that it was bad.
1: Well, I'm going to, I'm I'm not going to use, this is not foul language. There was that, um, <clears throat> but I do want to say this one thing because it's, it's shocking and it's very important to recognize the difference in my opinion between, eh, you know, you told a racist joke or, you know,
0: the N word slipped out, you know, <laughs> the, the N word number slips out for me, but yeah, whatever. It, okay.
1: Right, just these these kind of like uh, uh, you know apolog- these these apologists who are like, well, he's not that racist. Right. Let okay. me let me make sure that I put this in the right context. There was a, a Facebook meme, uh, a a picture of uh, a bunch of brown skinned people in a desert, like just standing in a desert, and the, and the 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 caption on the picture said something like, "What if illegals." all went home or something like that. Okay. Oh, then there was a little bunch of co- uh, comments beneath this. One of the comments was directed to attorney Doyle, said something like, hey, Richie, why don't you, you got a big car. Why don't you get a bunch of them together and drive them to the border? And what he said in response was, I would give him the Jimmy Hoffa treatment.
0: Oh, Jesus. Yeah. For people who don't know, Jimmy Hoffa was the head of the Teamsters, who disappeared one day in Jersey, has never been found, but it's assumed he was killed by members of the mob.
1: Exactly. Basically, a lawyer in Massachusetts, a practicing attorney in the state of Massachusetts, who was representing not just white people, but black people and brown people and all different kinds of people, was saying that he was cool with... Now I, he was going
0: to summarily execute them and yeah, make them disappear, which right. is what happens, by the way, in fascist regimes. You know, right before the pandemic, I went to Madrid with my wife and we went to several museums and walked around. And what's interesting about Madrid, and I know I'm taking us on a tangent, at that time, it was a city in a country that recovered from fascism. But it took some time. Remember that old joke, Francisco Franco is still dead, like from the 70s? Like he, he lived through the 70s. This was a, not a, the equivalent of a Nazi. He was backed by Hitler. And after World War II, he was the last remaining fascist in Europe. And it served American interests for him to be there because they were nervous about, you know, socialists or whatever. And there are monuments throughout the city of Madrid to famous people who just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And no one, no one ever knows what happened, but it was assumed that the government took them. Uh, there's also lots of art in the museums depicting, uh, you know, caricatures of the fascist regime and talking about that sort of stuff. And Americans forget, or maybe they don't nowadays, that that was the equivalent of a Nazi country. Uh, in the, Up to the 70s, when Francisco Franco eventually died and the, the country came back to a democratic country, which mm-hmm. it is as of today. I just want to throw out, speaking of fascism, you know, in this country, besides being racist and white supremacist, um, there were a lot of Nazis who escaped prosecution in Nuremberg. And the way they did it was they were of use to the United States in anti-communist work. So, I, for some reason, I went down a rabbit hole and I looked up the Eichmann trial and how the Mossad, the Israelis, were looking for ex-Nazi leaders to bring back to Israel to try. And the most notable was, of course, Adolf Eichmann. There was a trial and he was executed. But they, at the same time, they were looking for Joseph Mengele. But he had friends in the CIA. Now, just think about this. The guy who did experiments on children in Auschwitz who decided who lived and died. And plenty more like him were fr- had friends in the Central Intelligence Agency in the United States because they wanted to fight against Russia and the East Germans. So they got them out and they put them in certain places. This is what we're dealing with. It's not, I mean, sure it has to do with black America. I'm sure it has to do with anti-Semitism and anti-communism. This is not the land of the free and the home of the brave. I've come to this. I am becoming an agitator. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, here's somebody who's getting paid by the government to represent people. And what they don't know is, look, we, I I don't always love my clients. Some of my clients are not the greatest people in the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm not personal friends with them. But I have sworn an oath to defend them to the best of my ability. I Mm -hmm. literally had to, I believe I had to swear when I uh, passed the bar in each of the states I passed. And I have a code of conduct I have to follow. Mm -hmm. And uh, I follow that code of conduct. And if I have a problem with a client, uh, I would literally tell somebody I can't take this case. Somebody else should take this case.
1: Well, it's very interesting you should say that, Eric, because that that code of conduct um, and that that statement that, especially as criminal defense attorneys, we often um, represent people with whom we do not share a worldview. Let's put it (laughs) that
0: way. (laughs) Right. And that could either be sex offenders or... I've had people say (gasps) incredibly racist things to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not about me, but as if I were a confidant. Because I was white, they could say things about not white people to me. Right, right. And I bite my tongue. Anyway, sorry.
1: What you just said, interestingly, has been used as a defense of Richard Doyle. Because what I have heard is... All criminal defense lawyers have problems with their clients, but we understand that they put these personal feelings aside when they represent them.
0: Yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. I just want to be clear so people don't think I'm some kind of racist SOB. My no, no, no. problems are with, you know, people who are violent to other people. I don't particularly like that, but I... I I will still represent these people to the best of my ability. I am not going to sabotage the case, nor is it my point of view that because someone has a certain skin color, they are naturally they have a natural propensity toward violence. That's not my world view. Well, right?
1: listen, I do want to make sure that you understand that your point was not what your point was not to excuse. Richard Doyle's behavior. Ah, no, but no, no, no. But that has been used by others, and it's a it is a it's a it's appalling. And the reason it's appalling is because it makes the equivalency, the false equivalency, between having a problem with someone because they are credibly accused of raping or murdering somebody, and having a problem with somebody. Because their skin is brown, that is a shocking and profoundly immoral uh, problem, or I should say, moral problem. That that we should, for a moment, think that there is something to be some you know some equivalency to be drawn between having some problem with somebody because they are a felon, a convicted, or a confessed felon and somebody who happens to have a different skin color than you yeah those
0: are like apples and cinder blocks
1: but but this is i mean this is in a published opinion where one you you know and by the way these are people who are like you know they they put themselves out there as people who are you know very very anti- they think they're being anti-racist. They think that this is like, it, it, it's it's just a part of the it's a part of the the landscape that the criminal defense lawyers they don't like their clients. So we shouldn't treat this guy any differently than anybody else who doesn't like their clients. And it's just shocking. It's just
0: shocking. So how yeah. did this come to you? Because it's uh, you know I haven't made it clear. You usually are not involved unless there's a case that's handed off to you and something went wrong. So just to be clear, you're an appellate attorney in uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. meaning that if someone's had a trial or they've pleaded guilty or they've had some other lower court experience that has had an error or someone suspects, especially the client, that there was error below, you are tasked with reviewing and or representing them in a higher or appellate court to review that lower court action. That's That's a very general way of looking at it, but that's certainly good enough for our purposes, right? Mm -hmm. And so somehow, Mm -hmm. this came to your attention. I'm not asking you who said what or how you got it, but more like, what kind of case brought this up? Because that's usually what happens, right? Like a case comes to your attention, and you do a little research, and you're like, Oh, my God, what the hell is this?
1: That's that's exactly what I said. Oh, my God. What the hell is this? Because this is brand new stuff. I mean, this is really, really, really strange. Um, I'm I'm grateful to to report that it, that I haven't seen a lot of, you know, overtly racist lawyers out there. Um, however, it is a little bit concerning. And probably this is just my naivete showing again. Um, there's probably tons of them out there they're just smart enough to keep their racism hidden
0: but anyway well, i think that they're... you know the country it's just racist i'm yeah. sorry it's just a reality and this is,
1: this is more than just you know people who who you know make generalizations and you know this is this is like you know this guy was going out of his way to publicly proclaim you know not just his you know like hey i'll you know, I'm. Ha- I'll be happy to to whack a bunch of you know, people from uh, with brown skin. This was. Anyway, I, I, I got you. I got this case because, actually, I I can't remember specifically whether it was directed in, it was sort of pushed in my direction, um, or whether it was just by, just by
0: ch- chance. But um, what I mean is, what was there a case? And someone made an allegation about this attorney. Oh, oh no. Okay, yeah. Here's here's
1: what happened. The client has been complaining. So he pleaded he pleaded guilty in 2016, and he's and he has been complaining f- since then uh, that he wanted to withdraw his guilty pleas. But he at the beginning he wasn't complaining about the fact that his lawyer was racist. He was just trying to find a way to undo his guilty pleas. He just felt like something went wrong.
0: Okay, and just um, for people to be clear, um, when people plead guilty, there's a conversation that the judge has with a defendant explaining to them all the rights that that defendant is giving up, all the constitutional rights, such as to a jury trial, the right to uh, face your accusers, to cross-examine witnesses, et cetera. It's a, it's a lengthy list. We call it the colloquy a plea colloquy, so that when a defendant pleads guilty, they have, uh, you know, because not everybody's a lawyer, they understand all the rights they're giving up. And if they still want to plead guilty, they do that because the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I believe the federal government, I think every state in the union does not like do-overs. Ed, you and I grew up in the suburbs, but we played a lot of stickball. I'm guessing you played stickball. I did. When a car comes, whether you were striking out or hit a home run, Everybody runs to the side of the street to not get killed, and they yell do-over, and you get a do-over. They do not like do-overs in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts or elsewhere, so they really want what we call finality. They want everybody in the courtroom to get, this is the one time we're going to talk about this. Once you've pleaded guilty and you've been sentenced, you're done. We don't want to see you again. Have a nice five to ten years wherever you're staying. Mm-hmm. That is not what your client wanted. Your client did plead guilty, and then afterwards was like, "You know what? I'm not happy with this." That's right. Sometimes, sometimes it's buyer's remorse. You know, as we say, sometimes it's like, "Oh, I never should have pleaded guilty." My mind starts going through all the permutations of what I could have done. But sometimes there is, in fact, something that went terribly wrong in the plea. Right. Just I'm just giving a little background to the non-lawyers listening.
1: So when I got the case, that's the. That was my expectation, that I would look into this and I would discover was there something wrong, and then <laughs> I learned that I, I was assigned this case in in twenty twenty one. Okay, so this is a five years after the guilty plea, and and the, and this client had been you know trying to get trying to get this guilty plea undone for that many years. In 2021, I get the case and I start to look into it and I discover that in, I get it in like June or July of 2021. What I learn is that in March or April of 2021, CPCS had disclosed the fact that this guy from 2014 to 2017 had posted all these racist things on Facebook. (laughs) They learned about it in 2017. They didn't tell anybody for four years. Oops. Yeah, that's its own thing. You can do a podcast on that. Well,
0: I'm not sure that I can, but that's a whole other. (laughs) Just to be clear, I do work for CPCS, so I don't really want to chase that down at the moment.
1: Anyway. The, the information is now available and I'm looking at this stuff and thinking, oh my God, oh my God. Now here's, here's another part of the story where I have to tell on myself. And it's, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed at the process that it went, the, the, the thought process that, that uh, went on when I got this case. And when I saw these Facebook posts. Okay. First thing that I thought, was conflict of interests now it's not that that's wrong. there is a big problem if you are a criminal defendant and your lawyer has, your lawyer owes you complete loyalty the, the The lawyer can't be splitting his you know his loyalty between you and another witness or you and another defendant, or in this case you and another race of people, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is the first thing that I thought of. Why I'm telling you that that is messed up is because what this was, was racism. This was discrimination. Any I got to believe if I had grown up as anything other than a straight white guy, that's the first thing that would have popped into my mind. Like, oh my God, this is racist. You can't do this. Right. I got there. (laughs) Now, interestingly, I'm getting pushback on this. I am I have presented exactly what I just said to you. I have said that this plea is unconstitutional. And the reason it is unconstitutional is because this lawyer was racist and the state gave this man a racist lawyer. Got that it. violated his equal protection rights. He's being Because I, I I could
0: see, I, I'm interrupting you for a second, because I actually think I had this conversation with you as a matter of just being a lawyer. I said to you, well, what? Well, just the fact that he said these things, what if he gave a great defense? Exactly. And your response, because that's what people, probably the vast majority of people who aren't lawyers listening to this are going to go, well, What if he did a really great job and he just, in his mind, was racist, but he checked all the boxes, he did everything the way he was supposed to do? What is your problem then, attorney Ed Gaffney? By by the
1: way, I will answer that in just one minute. But before I do, I will say it's not just non-lawyers. It is lawyers. It is the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It is, so far, the judge who is handling this case. This is everybody saying this to me. The, The response is, we don't do that in this country. We don't do that. Because here's, here's my analogy. Let's decide, it's not the lawyer. Let's say it's the courtroom. Okay? What hmm. we've got, we've got a courtroom over here. And it's a courtroom for just
0: black defendants. Everything's the
1: same. Everything's the same.
0: You're we've going to back to Plessy versus Ferguson? Yeah, but we're good. For people who don't know what that is, that was the separate but equal decision, separate right?
1: Separate but equal. We are we are 100% fine. It doesn't matter that he's a racist lawyer. He did a good job. And and it is it is <laughs> in my mind it is exactly the same thing and I and I truly believe that it is harder for white people, and I include myself, it is harder for white people to see how shockingly obvious it nice. is for so, the, 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 the violation the constitutional violation the fact that this man should be put to this the indignity of knowing that this man who represented who is supposed to be his guy 100 percent loyalty you are my champion right you are in the driver's seat of this very important vehicle that is that is determining my fate you think i'm less than you and by the
0: way that's the like, those are the kind of conversations I have with clients that there are some things I don't want to know and I won't go too into it but there are some questions I don't want to know the answer to when I'm representing somebody but I do I want to know as much as I can and I'm the only person they can trust and they mm-hmm. I do tell them that like I don't want to go into a courtroom and be surprised right so you need to tell me everything even though it may be unpleasant or y- or hurt you in your case it's better if i know it before we go in right because i'm the only guy on your side i'm sure you've had these kind of conversations too anyway sorry please well let me let me spin by uh, by the way a did you ever think that we were going to talk about plessy versus ferguson (laughs) that b you might actually put it in a brief at some point to talk Hmm. about this issue and c have you considered not that you need to but i'm curious have you considered having a co counsel who's a person of color to, or at least a review? I know that there are people in the literary world who are what we call sensitivity readers. Mm-hmm. So let's say, well, I happen to know a white woman who wrote black characters, who was very concerned about doing that and made sure that she had lots of people read them. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't want to come off like a white woman wear, writing these fake black characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and being you know ridiculous in the process. Right. Well, uh, to answer your questions, no,
1: I did not think I would be talking to you about <laughs> Plessy versus Ferguson. Nor do I think I, whatever, put it in a brief. Um, however, the, the the third the third question you asked had to do with uh, black co counsel,
0: yeah. and
1: um, I have. Uh, I have reached out to the um, the SEL uh, Southern Legal um, SELC. Oh, what Southern
0: Poverty Law Poverty Center.
1: Law Center, and I reached out to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund.
0: These the are, SELC- by the way, people. If you're looking for places to give money to, <laughs> these <laughs> are two excellent organizations: the Southern Poverty Law Center and the NAACP. Um, they keep the name, uh, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> but they do have a legal defense fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, both of these organizations are staffed uh, by amazing attorneys and they have a tremendous mission. Just putting in a plug there. Yeah.
1: The um, the Southern Poverty Law Center does not do criminal matters. So that I learned. Uh, the NAACP... Legal Defense Fund um, basically said, good luck, um, you may." <laughs> oh, um, now, now <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know what went into their decision. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it changes if the case goes up to an appellate uh, uh, court, because right now we're in the trial court. I'm, oh, I'm asking the well. trial judge for a new trial. If this happens, my client will have a happy result and that will be that. If but it won't matter, it won't matter to any other case.
0: It's not right, right? Any- because right, just to let people know, it <laughs> despite what's going on with Roe v. Wade, there is such a thing as setting precedent. And that means that um if something were to be decided here in a higher level court. Those are what are called published opinions. And other high courts rely on those published opinions um, as precedent for making their decisions. And uh, and
1: for other cases. I mean, that,
0: you know, yes, for making their decisions about other cases that may right.
1: have similar fact patterns or analogous fact patterns. And I
0: because really- there's other states with racist lawyers. I'm just going to throw it out there. And right. eventually someone's going to read something and they're going to bring a case. Yes: And I, I mean, Alabama maybe <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I
1: do believe that if and when this becomes more known, this case, whether it's an appellate court or what, I would not be surprised in the least if um, defendants do research and start looking.
0: because oh, yeah
1: this came, this came to light. I don't know exactly how, but I'm fairly sure that another lawyer who was a, a Facebook friend of Richard Doyle, happened to see these Facebook posts and contacted CPCS and said, you guys got to look at this stuff because they, the reason that he got thrown off the CPCS list is because they did an internal investigation and they discovered, yep, he made the posts. And in fact, well, we, we, uh, we did an evidentiary hearing in, in the case I'm handling. I wasn't the lawyer who was handling the actual hearing, but we spoke to the lawyer who did the investigation who knew Richard Doyle. And he was asked the question, Is this, uh, did this surprise you? And he was like, nope, I knew Richard Doyle. <laughs> this was like just exactly what I expected.
0: And by the way, people, uh, I don't know if uh, many people out there have acquaintances who are in prison for long periods of time. You and I have clients who do research. Look, if you're in prison for uh, 5, 10, 15 years, um, sometimes all you have is to go into a library and start looking around and see if you can discover things and educate yourself. A lot of times people are not you know they they miss the salient points and they send a lot of cases to you that really don't help them or don't apply. but occasionally people really do find things out um, yeah. one thing
1: i wanted to I wanted to uh, go a little bit further on the on the um, black co Council issue because it, it very early on i was concerned um and i still am concerned to some degree um about the fact that you know a straight white guy is doing this case um by the way doyle's racism went also into anti muslim hatred you know he was he well, was why on a basis you know he was sure And my client is not just black, but he's also Muslim. So, you know, he's checking all the boxes. Um, However, it occurred to me that in a, I call this an unfortunate twist. Um, There might be at least to some degree an advantage uh, for having a white lawyer in this position and the reason is because i'm probably going to be talking to white judges right and, and it's really interesting how different our approach is and how um and i i've had to learn i i i have um i got a strange reaction um in one of the early hearings in this case i was trying to express to the judge. I was arguing that this circumstance was so bad, it was so fundamentally uh, problematic, that it constituted what's called structural error. And this kind of an error means that you don't, you don't look into whether the person was innocent or guilty You don't look into whether there was a difference or there would have been a difference if this thing didn't exist. You just say, listen, this is the United States of America. The Constitution is the Constitution. And we don't do things this way. We're just not going to let this stand. And I was arguing that. And as a part of in my preparation, I was trying to convey something that I still struggle with because I can't put myself in the shoes of a black person. I cannot. And yet I am representing a black person. And so it's my job to present arguments on his behalf. So I was trying to figure out a way that I might be able to express what seems to me to be an outrageous and obviously outrageous set of circumstances to a judge who does not seem to believe it. And I came up with this formulation. What I said, what I, what I thought to say and what I, what I did say was something along the lines of this. I cannot imagine one African-American man or woman who looks at this case and who says, that the appointment of a racist white man to represent a black man is fair. Okay, so that was my, and I prepared this. By the way, has this been argued, this case? Uh, Well, that that part of the argument has been made. The argument that it should be thrown, the the guilty plea should be thrown out because this was a structural error. That argument has been made and I lost.
0: So So you have taken an appeal from that?
1: We haven't, no, because we still are fighting whether the guilty plea should be withdrawn Okay. on a a different standard
0: of review. All right. And just so, because people won't understand this, but according to the criminal procedure that you must follow, you are doing certain things before you can perfect your notice of appeal and take your case up to the next level. That's right. So I have
1: to, I'm not going to appeal until I am denied. I have made a motion to withdraw the guilty plea. I have presented a handful of reasons why. The first reason was because this is structural error. This is so bad that I don't need to tell you anything more than you know.
0: Right. And that has been denied. denied. And that one's. I'm just, I am hurting you because. I know you may not believe this, but we are running out of time and I wanted to ask you some other stuff. So while this is fascinating and important, let me um, finish
1: the story and then we'll go to the next point. Okay, good. I said those things and, and what the judge said was, whoa, 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 let's tone down the rhetoric. (laughs) And I was, I was really surprised. I wasn't trying to be inflammatory,
0: but. And if people know you, by the way, Ed, Ed is a really calm, even keeled guy my guess is you didn't really raise your voice. You're just bringing up these points that make certain older white people uncomfortable.
1: That's what it was. I mean, I wasn't shouting. I was, I was, I was saying it in, a, in this kind of tone. Like, yeah, I but
0: you're saying we're a racist. This is a racist thing. not
1: one single black w- w- man or woman that would think that this is fair. It was like that. Right. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to... S-
0: <laughs> I got I it. To they,
1: you're,
0: <laughs> no, and you're not a dramatic person. That's my job. <laughs> when I'm in court, I'm the guy who has almost been held in contempt. That's Brings the doing. drama. Yeah, I'll bring So uh, I, I want to say with the few minutes we have left, people may know this. You, you have been a published author. You were nominated for an Edgar Award. We've talked about that the last time you were here. But you've been doing other writing. And because it's pride, I want to talk about one of your more recent projects, which is, uh, well, why don't you just tell us? Okay. Because well, it's pride-related. Yes, it's
1: pride-related. Um, my son, Jason, is gay, and he is um, an independent filmmaker uh, and producer and actor, um, and he lives out in L.A. with his husband, Matt, um, and Jason and I um, co-write um, many of his projects, and we just finished filming the most recent, which is a six-part um, miniseries called Marriage of Inconvenience, um, which is going to come out on Deku. Um, that's D-E-K-K-O-O, Deku.com, which is kind of like, it's kind of, think of it like a gay Netflix. Um, I, I
0: Believe me, they would love to be the gay Netflix, <laughs> basically it's well, I basically was going to say Netflix has a lot of gay content. Yeah. For those yeah, of you who yeah, are yeah. wondering, but I get what you're saying. They're it's exclusively gay related yeah, entertainment. Yeah, it's a streaming service,
1: um, and you. I, I don't know what it is. Five bucks, six bucks a month, and you and you basically have, uh, you know, uh, their, their their content is, uh, you know, gay stories, stories with gay characters, gay leads. You know, okay. So, so Deku and Jason are collaborating on producing this series called Marriage of Inconvenience, which Jason and I wrote. And we just finished filming it. And it was really challenging because of a lot of reasons, many of which were COVID related, but we, we muscled through what was delightful and so much fun is that this is a comedy. This is a, um, it is a, uh, let's think of it as the odd couple. For uh, for uh, the twenty for the twenty first century, uh, the gay odd couple—a uh, couple of guys, a couple of gay guys—get um, matched terribly um, by witness protection, and they are—they uh, have a new program in witness protection where they put people together and in the same house, and their their cover story is that they're married. And so these two guys who are terribly, terribly mismatched now have to pretend that they're married. And um, it was tremendously fun to write. Jason plays one of the characters and our friend David Singletary, um, who has actually performed on another one of our projects, um, is, uh, is the other main, you know, the other lead. And boy, they are funny. They did a really good job and it was a lot of fun to do. And so we spent May... Oh, what where are we here yeah April, you were definitely April, re- May.
0: shooting in May uh maybe even the end of April yeah there might have been some shooting uh because you and I have interacted about a variety of things but you know I've known Jason literally his whole life yeah. uh, I knew David when I when I was first going back into New York to work um and they both first they're both funny I still send Jason um texts with videos where people (laughs) fall down (laughs) that is jason's favorite thing i think is when people (laughs) fall down uh i don't and and he kind of turned me on to it um (laughs) one of the funny uh, as background one of the funniest things that he i can't remember if i saw it and we were together and he cried so hard he almost wet himself or he just told me I think we were walking in the rain on a Sunday and someone got a whole Sunday times and dropped it in a puddle right in front of him. And for some reason, that just made Jason's day. I'm not saying he's a bad person. It's not what it is. It's, it's, it's this sort of... it's There's something like, you know, the kid dropping the ice cream cone kind of thing. Just Kurt Vonnegut. Do you know
1: Kurt Vonnegut? He had the same thing. Oh. Kurt Vonnegut. The funniest thing he ever saw. The funniest thing he ever saw was... He was just on a a sidewalk in New York. A bus came. And so he, you know, he he didn't see anything but the front of the bus. The doors open, people start coming off. And then one person came out horizontally. They must have tripped. They (laughs) came out horizontally. He thought it was the funniest thing he ever saw. He got thrown out of the ballet once (laughs) because a ballerina tripped. And fell off stage, but she crashed into some music stands.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I met. Stop uh, laughing. (laughs) Oh, I wish I knew this because I met Kurt Vonnegut (gasps) for a hot minute once outside of my law school. I was walking on Fifth Avenue where my law school was. And I was like, oh, my God, that's Kurt Vonnegut. And I like literally walked up and said, you're Kurt Vonnegut. Like I was like, (laughs) I had read Breakfast of Champions and a bunch of other things and I was just blown away by him. And he looked at me and goes, that's right. Who are you? <laughs> uh, and I literally said, oh, I'm nobody. Uh, and then I introduced myself. He was from a town very close to where my college was. Mm-hmm. He, he writes about Cahos in some of his stuff in that area because he wrote for General Electric as a technical writer back in Schenectady. And so he had a tie to Schenectady. Anyway, I like your stories about him better. <laughs> I, I spoke to him briefly and then we walked away from each other, but it was, I have a lot of two minute interactions with famous people. Mm. I feel like I'm an, like a very minor character in a much bigger show, uh, <laughs> which is not really how one should feel about their lives. But so what can I say? I'm comic relief. Perhaps. <laughs> uh, you know, like guilt, uh, Uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, right? They're like these minor, minor characters in Hamlet. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, people, you really should get an education. Jesus. (laughs) But Tom Stoppard, if I'm not mistaken, wrote a play called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, where we follow them uh, to their ignominious end, if that's the right word. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, we we all have very interesting stories. Uh, Mine, the least of them, apparently. We're going to have to wrap this up, Ed Gaffney, but I like the way I got in a little bit about pride in this, as well as our shared outrage at injustice. Mm. Um, If people want to know more about this, is there any kind of press release or thing, or are you just going to, maybe you'll let me know and we'll have you back? Or how is? What's interesting is there's a lot of people who are big name lawyers who love to talk to the press, but you and I know that actually, that's usually not a great idea for lawyers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's correct. Now, are you talking? What are you? What are you talking about? the The lawsuit, or are you talking about marriage of inconvenience? What, oh, let's what, talk about both.
0: both. Okay, for the well, lawsuit. You're not going to really talk about that, right? Nah, that's, I mean, It's
1: not really a lawsuit. Yeah, it's, it's. I said it. I said lawsuit, but it's not really. It's just a. It's. It's a case. Right. I mean, it, if anything happens, it might make some headlines because the the facebook posts are so outrageous um you know there are news outlets that are following this story um mm. i don't mean i've got people camped outside my house
0: <laughs> <laughs> no but i but I, like I understand that. there there are like uh journalists who are fairly new or boring and what they get to do is they get to keep an eye on cases that come out yeah, they're, they're, especially legal journalists and if they see a new case with some kind of important Holding, they will say, "Hey, editor, this is important to throw in."
1: And, and I got to tell you, I mean, although I do believe it's important, I also believe that one of the reasons that that it has garnered the little bit of press interest it has is because these posts are kind of scandalous. So it's it's, it's you know it it serves that the purpose of you know putting something on the headline that's pretty shocking. The marriage, about, of, yeah, the marriage of inconvenience thing. That's. Um, I mean, Jason is editing it right now. Um, it's scheduled to be released um, before the end of the year on Deku. So that you know, I'll let you. You'll 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 know. <laughs> you know, Great. we talked a lot, so you'll be you'll be aware. And um, for those that don't know, do you have you told people about Jolly? Do you do you want? Oh, uh, we don't need
0: to Jolly? tell people about okay. Jolly. We don't
1: have to tell people about Jolly. But but um, Eric's I was here. in a
0: I was in a film that Ed wrote.
1: Yeah, Eric's got um, more than a passing understanding, and way more than a little bit of talent in this uh, arena. And I think he will enjoy the work that these guys put into it. I think he's gonna he's gonna laugh. I think it's, I'm
0: sure I will. I'm constantly amazed by how much older your kids keep getting. It's pissing me off because <laughs> I remember buying them Fisher Price toys. Okay. Yeah,
1: I gotta have it. I gotta have a talk with them. What Things the hell are, are they up hands?
0: to? Um, Yeah, well look, be well Um, It's great to talk to you, thanks for coming on to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin Uh, It was great to have you, Ed Love doing it Ed Gaffney, award-nominated, multi-published legal thriller writer Outstanding attorney and uh, writer and producer These are the kind of guests we love to have Happy Pride, by the way, and um, you know, if you're enjoying Pride before you go out to meet that special someone that you haven't even met yet, or go on the uh, a trip to a Pride parade, or just to be yourself, why don't you bring an Abe's Muffin? It's a great way to break the ice. You see someone you are attracted to, hand them a muffin. Yes, I'm really saying these things. If you are interested in communicating with me, go to www.isthatreallylegal.com. There is a place for you to communicate with me, share the show, subscribe to the show, rate the show. Thank you so much. We're going to just keep coming at you with interesting people and interesting topics. Stay tuned, my friends and take care of each other and yourself. And it's time to start thinking ahead to the elections. Put some money Uh, to where it could do the most good organizations uh, certain candidates look to be doing some volunteering it really matters thank you be well and we'll talk to you soon